since my baby left me Well, I found a new place to dwell Well, it's down at the end of Lonely Street That heartbreak hotel where I'll be I'll be just so lonely, baby Well, I'm so lonely I'll be just so lonely I could die Although it's always crowded You still can find some room For broken all right, we're back for our third and final segment. And, you know, it's, it's sad that we only have an hour a week to talk about all the interesting things that are going on in the world, but uh, it is an hour that we have, and we're going to make the best use of it we can. And would like to note in our third segment that there's an obituary we should cite, as there sometimes is in our, in our third segment. We would like to note the passing of the legendary Helen Gurley Brown who certainly cut quite a figure in American culture over the past generation. Helen Gurley Brown was the author of Sex and the Single Girl back in the early 1960s, which shocked America with the notion that unmarried women not only could have sex, but could also enjoy it. After this, Helen Gurley Brown spent three decades as the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. She told... The Women of America, precisely how to enjoy sex even more. Noted her New York Times obituary somewhat unkindly. Helen Gurley Brown died last Monday in New York at age 90, although parts of her were considerably younger. But truly, as Cosmopolitan's editor from 1965 until 1997, Helen Gurley Brown was widely credited with being the first to introduce frank discussions of sex into magazines for women. The look of women's magazines in the newsstands today, which is a sea of voluptuous models and, and titillating cover lines, is due in no small part to her influence via Cosmopolitan. Sex and the Single Girl was published in 1962, the year before Betty Friedan ignited the modern women's movement with The Feminine Mystique. It taught unmarried women how to look their best, have delicious affairs, and ultimately bag a man for keeps, all in breathless prose. Brown was noted to be a former advertising copywriter. Note of the obit, few magazines have been more closely associated with their editor as Cosmopolitan was with Brown. Before she took over, the magazine's target reader was a married suburbanite preoccupied with the perfect figure, the perfect child, and the perfect jello salad. Helen Gurley Brown would toss the kids in the jello, but keep the diet advice with a vengeance. Yes, readers would need to land Mr. Wright someday. That was still every woman's grail, but in an era in which an unmarried woman was called an old maid at age 23, the new Cosmopolitan gave readers license not to settle for settling down with just anyone and to enjoy the search with blissful abandon. Herbitz noted that Brown was a, an advertising copywriter in Los Angeles and in 1959 married David Brown, a Hollywood producer. Brown, who produced Jaws and other well-known films, died in 2010. Back in the early 60s, David Brown stumbled upon a cache of letters his wife had written in her 20s to a married man who was smitten with her. Brown persuaded her to write Sex and the Single Girl. Though the book seems almost quaint today, it caused a sensation it was when it was published in 1962, selling millions of copies. In 1965, the Hearst Corporation asked her to take over Cosmopolitan. She then transformed the magazine. Months earlier, Cosmos covered had featured photos of demure, high-collared girl-next-door types. Brown's first issue showed a voluptuous blonde whose deep cleavage was barely contained by her plunging neckline. What Cosmos' previous cover lines had lacked in pith and punch, diabetes, will your children inherit it? Brown more than made up for. 
<laughs> things such as world's greatest lover, what it was like to be wooed by him on her inaugural cover. Readers and advertisers flocked to the new Cosmopolitan. When Brown took over, the magazine had a circulation of less than 800,000. At its height in the 1980s, it approached 3 million. Her obituaries note that in her office she had a cushion embroidered with the line, Good girls go to heaven. Bad girls go everywhere. All right, we've got about five or six minutes left on today's program. We should note that uh, the science has not yet begun at the Gale Crater on Mars, but the Curiosity has woken up, taken some pictures, and apparently captured in its initial snapshot the crash of the rocket stage that had lowered it safely down to the ground. Although I must say, looking at the web pictures of this, <laughs> I don't know, it looks like something between a UFO photo and pictures of Sasquatch. But the scientists seem convinced that it is indeed the crash of the uh, of the rocket. So we'll hope that hopefully in the future they will have some uh, some better prints of that. The landscape on Mars, as it's unfolding, looks strikingly like the Mojave Desert. And I suppose it's only a matter of time before someone starts talking about the faked Mars landing. But we shall see. Before the landing, Air and Space Smithsonian had a uh, fine uh, fine cover story titled Occupy Mars, wherein they quoted Apollo 11. Command module pilot Michael Collins, the guy that had to (laughs) sit inside the spacecraft while Armstrong and Aldrin got to walk on the lunar surface. Michael Collins asked about uh, travel to Mars. And by the way, he published a book in 1990 titled Mission to Mars, in which Collins noted that it was a lack of political will to pay for the high costs of a human trip to Mars, which were much more daunting than technological challenge. Said Collins, the only thing I know for certain is that starting a human colony on a second planet will cost much less than the weapons we buy to destroy the first one. To which we say, hear, hear. And asked if he thought we were any closer to a human mission to Mars than when he wrote the book back in 1990, Collins said, no, I think we're probably further away today than we were 20 years ago because the current White House and the current NASA administration don't really have a clear-cut vision of where they want to go. All right, how much time we got left? Three minutes? All right, let's close with an item sent to us by Pablo about uh, what was described by... Lieutenant Tim Oscar of the Royal Australian Navy as the weirdest thing I've seen in 18 years at sea, which turned out to be a mass of pumice floating in the South Pacific. And we're talking about a pretty large mass, 300 miles in length by 30 miles in width. It's composed of the spongy rock known as pumice. You've seen pumice. You probably have a pumice stone at home. It is, in fact, a, uh, it is in fact a spongy volcanic rock made up of, uh, well, trapped gas and hardening lava. Somewhere in the South Pacific, probably the, possibly the, what's described as the Monawai Seamount, which has been apparently active, well, something has spewed out just a huge mass of rock causing this 300-mile by 30-mile mass of floating material. I was curious to note uh, in the articles about this that it said recent studies have suggested that pumice floats, like this one, may have played an important role in the evolution of life on Earth, since these quote-unquote islands can float across large stretches of oceans and in the process ferry animals, plants, and even colonies of microbes across water barriers. Somewhere in one of my souvenir cases, I have a bit of pumice rock, which I gathered from Lake Atitlan down in Guatemala, from one of the 
volcanoes that surround the lake. For follow-up on this, we're going to have to go with our New Zealand correspondent, Michael Bana, who we've not spoken to in many a year. So we're going to have to put an email in to Michael and see what he knows about this. I bet, I bet he does know something. Anyway, our thanks go to Sean Mitten, who is always a great pleasure to speak with. And we would note this program was produced, like all of them, by Edward McMillan, who's no longer going by Edward the Lion McMillan, I believe. Although we do propose, perhaps, Edward the Mammoth McMillan. How about Edward Diddy McMillan? Well, I give up. There's just no pleasing some people. All right, that about does it for today's program. We'll see you next week at the same time. I'm Douglas Everett, and this has been Radio Parallax. Stay tuned now as the musical portion of KDVS's broadcasting resumes. You ain't nothing but a hound dog The crying all the time You ain't nothing but a hound dog Crying all the time Nothing but a